All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. Hello, everybody. This is uh, your host, Chell uh, from Masaryk. This is Unqualified Opinions. Um, today, we have Don Song from uh, Oasis Labs. Um, I, I, I've met Song, uh, Don, um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, or actually a year ago, uh, at a friend's um, uh, lunch, and um, she, I, I remember her because she she's one of the most impressive uh, people I've ever met in my life. She's in, in crypto. She's one of the very few people who actually has a Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> she has a um, award, uh, I guess, the Sloan Award, which is one of the most uh, prestigious. Uh, academic awards uh, in computer science. Um, in academy. In, in academy, that's right. So um, we're going to talk about uh, Oasis Labs. We're going to talk about uh, crypto in general, DeFi and privacy, that kind of stuff. So without further ado, um, I'll let uh, uh, Dawn introduce herself in, in more detail. Hi, yeah, thanks. Um, it's my great uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Don Song. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO. Uh, of uh, Oasis Labs, and I'm also a professor in computer science mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so tell us about um, your journey into crypto. Um, you had an uh, amazing career in academia. Um, how did you get into crypto? How, how, how was the journey like? Um, okay, so first, I guess, depending on what you mean by crypto. Yeah. So in academia, when we talk about crypto... It uh, means crypto cryptography. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, we refer to uh, yeah. uh, 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 cryptography. Yeah. Um, so I have been working in security and privacy for over two decades now. Wow. Essentially, my PhD thesis was in computer security. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, even as I was doing my PhD work, I have been you know, working in the space of applied cryptography. And one of the projects I worked on, actually, 
um, so essentially I designed the first uh, uh, cryptographic uh, algorithm for searching unencrypted data. Okay. So this was like more than 20 years ago, okay. uh, before cloud computing is even a thing. Right. Um, so at the time I was looking at the problem where you, for example, you have emails on the server, uh, but you want to keep it encrypted so yep. that the server doesn't know what's in your emails. Yep. But then you want to maybe uh, do search, so you only download emails that contain certain keywords. Yes. So how do you do that? It's essentially, how do you allow the server to perform search on yep. um, encrypted data? And I, yeah, with my collaborators, uh, so I designed the first uh, cryptographic algorithm to enable search on okay. encrypted data. Is that, is that algorithm used uh, currently in, you know, I don't know, Gmail or large enterprises. So I actually tried to right talk to Gmail okay. later on to to deploy something like this. Okay. Um, and has uh, the paper has a huge number of citations, yeah. Yeah. thousands of citations and, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, yeah. So as yeah, I essentially look forward to when the algorithm is deployed in practice. Okay. <laughs> and uh, after and that, and there has been some pilots. I think. Uh, trying to deploy some extensions to the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And that was 20 years ago. Um, what happened afterwards? Uh, what else did you work on? Oh, I mean, I continue to work uh, in the area of security and privacy. Mm -hmm. So actually, another paper that, that I wrote, um, also it's more than a decade ago, uh, it's the first paper on what's called proof of position. So essentially, uh, to uh, verify remotely that uh, a server has your data, um, but essentially uh, the client can remotely verify the server has your data mm -hmm. without the client actually right, having, um, right, mm -hmm. having the data. So, so this is also, uh, this work, uh, an extension of this work is now essentially the protocol in Filecoin. <laughs> oh, okay, wow. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, is, is it part of the, IPFS or like? Uh, not the IPFS itself, but okay. uh, it's this concept of proof of position. So essentially, for example, in Filecoin, you want to prove, you want uh, the storage to prove that they have your data. So essentially, you need to do a remote proof to show that they have your data. Okay, well, wow, very interesting. Okay, so uh, you accidentally contributed to uh, Filecoin, which is one of my favorite products in this space. Um, yeah, so these are just examples of, you know, like some of this work, like this started really early on, right? It's yeah. like a decade or two decades ago. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it just takes time like for a, the A lot of things to... in, in academia and, um, you know, pure math, computer science, uh, like there's a lot of discoveries that uh, take, you know, a couple of decades to actually get into uh, um, real to world. To the real world, yeah, to yes. To the real world. Sometimes yeah. by accident, uh, other times, uh, you know, it's... And maybe not so much by accident, I think it's more uh, like oftentimes, right, so theory and ideas, yeah. they are, um, you know, long before when the, essentially the time is ripe for actual deployment. Right. So essentially it's, uh, right, so oftentimes you just, it just takes time yeah. for the real world to catch on. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I can relate to this because I, um, I spent a lot of time uh, you know, studying deep learning, uh, neural networks, which is something that happened uh, five decades ago or something, right? Like, the first neural networks was designed like, I don't know, uh, 
you, you know this better, yeah, but maybe, like maybe, three, to, three to five decades ago. Maybe very early, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the real application is really started happening in the last uh, decade or so. And for that is because only you know up until recently yeah. we had enough data, we had enough compute, exactly, yeah. uh, to actually make it practical. Exactly, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I feel like. Do you think this might happen in in the blockchain space as well? Um, oh, I think definitely the blockchain space. Um, I mean, the technology is still early. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's still all these uh, issues that we are trying to address. For yeah. example, scalability yeah. and privacy protection and so on. Yeah. Right. So it's at a very early stage, and yeah. then we do hope that, uh, uh, and also in terms of real world applications, as time goes on, as the technology becomes more mature, and also. As um, people see more of the needs, mm-hmm. then I, right, For then sure. the space will. Sure. Right, we, we hope to see more adoption. So, uh, back to our original question: What what got you into uh, the space in, in the blockchain space? Uh, oh, in the what, blockchain space. Yeah. So first of all, uh, for me, given that I have been working in computer security for so long, yeah. for over two decades, I always view blockchain essentially as one part of uh, security. Yeah, okay. Because when we look at blockchain, what are the main um, properties and characteristics that we want? Uh, one of the key things for blockchain is that you want to build a system that's resilient against uh, you know, malicious actors, yeah. uh, depending on you know what thresholds uh, yeah. uh, malicious actors so you security want. Security in this case meaning uh, game theoretical security. I mean, overall, the goal of security is to build systems that are resilient against malicious attacks. Right. And hence, Essentially, that's why when people, you know, oftentimes people ask, oh, you know, when did we start, uh, when did academia actually start doing research in blockchain, or yeah. when did we actually start teaching blockchain? But actually, um, in, you know, in essence, actually, the field of studying uh, resilience against attacks has been around for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, the Byzantine... I mean, Bitcoin itself is, uh, you know, it's based on multiple decades of research in, right, in several right, areas. Right, 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 exactly, uh, exactly. Science, so that's so. why, you know, going back to your question, how did I get into blockchain? It, it's very natural. It's yeah. very, exactly, it's very natural. I have been working in security for more than two decades. For sure. And that's also why I said, like, blockchain, the essence of blockchain is a security, it's a core part of security. Yeah. Either you talk about um, the security uh, techniques, the you know, crypto techniques goes into it, or even when you talk about and the crypto economics or game theory, uh, they are all, you know, essentially different aspects mm-hmm. of security as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so you bring a very unique uh, insight uh, from your background into uh, the blockchain space. Um, so tell us a little bit about what's unique about uh, Oasis, uh, the mm-hmm. protocol. Yeah. So at Oasis, I think, um, I would say it is very different from most of the blockchain projects out there. Uh, I'll say the goal of uh, the Oasis platform is that we're actually building a platform to make it much easier to build privacy-first applications. Mm-hmm. And by, uh, uh, you know, to try to achieve this goal, we combine blockchain and privacy technology uh, together. Mm-hmm. And the platform is designed to achieve both greater scalability as well as privacy protection. For sure. And uh, the technology has different components to it. Uh, With this uh, scalable distributed ledger, uh, it enables 
users to essentially to enable an immutable log of uh, uh, users' rights to data. Mm -hmm. And also, we allow you to specify um, policies on their data. So for example, how you want your data to be uh, used, who can use your data. For, for and access to it. Uh, right. And uh, for example, if someone uses your data, what kind of compensation you may want to get. So yeah. these are all different types of policies that one can specify. Yeah. And, then, and then utilizing secure computing and other privacy technologies, we enable the data to be utilized in a privacy-preserving way that is compliant with the policy specified yes. uh, to it. So then overall, we actually provide uh, secure end-to-end -end, uh, data lifecycle management and using the technology to make it easier to build privacy-first applications. So uh, when we talk about privacy, um, I feel like there, there, there are probably multiple layers. Uh, you probably use more than one privacy technology. If, you're, if, the, if the protocol is, is focused on privacy, then you probably need to look at this privacy from you know, network layer, from hardware layer, from uh, application layer. Uh, so I'm curious how, uh, how to, like, let's dive into the technical details. Like how, how, how does OSIS achieve these uh, privacy? Okay, yeah, that's a very good question. So exactly, so privacy is actually a very complex topic. Yeah. Um, Actually, I was just in the White House nice. yesterday <laughs> to discuss uh, this uh, uh, very topic: uh, how we can, uh, right, how we can provide better data privacy okay. while enabling data to be utilized in a privacy-preserving way. Okay, so um, I assume you mostly talked about encryption. Uh, so, uh, so again, so privacy is a really complex topic. Yeah. So then we need to look at what privacy really means. Yes. And so, what, what does privacy really mean? Right, and then what are the different ways, essentially, um, what are the different aspects that yes. goes into protecting privacy? Exactly. So one, um, so one part of it is we can look at the computation process. So as you compute over data, um, one goal is that you want to ensure that the computation process itself does not leak uh, sensitive information. So right. for example, if I'm computing over, let's say, your bank uh, account information, uh, compute how much, uh, how much money you have in your bank, and yeah. so I can determine how much loan I should be able to give you, and yeah. so on. So this computation itself is computing over very sensitive information yes. about your bank account information, and then we want to make sure that this computation itself, uh, even if there's attackers, uh, we want to ensure that the attacker doesn't somehow gain sensitive information through this computation process. Mm -hmm. So typically how to achieve this, you have different ways. So one is uh, this idea about computing over encrypted data. Mm -hmm. So for example, the first example that I mentioned about searching on encrypted data, that's actually one example is that even though you are doing a, a keyword search over data, but because the computation process is happening over encrypted data, and hence, you can ensure that actually the computation process doesn't leak mm -hmm. any sensitive information. Could you about explain the uh, maybe encryption in layman's terms? Because most of our uh, audience um, probably doesn't have a technical background. So uh, I actually, so I, I learned a little bit of uh, math about encryption, but I'm, I don't know enough to explain that very well to uh, to a layman. So, so what is encryption? Okay. Okay. Um, 
Okay, that's a good question. So typically when we look at, uh, um, for example, just plain, plain data, we call that plain text. Yeah. So when you see, uh, you can call it raw data. When you look at the data, you can see exactly what the data is about. So for example, if I look at your bank account, information and I can see exactly the numbers so I can see how much money you have in your bank. Yep. So the goal of encryption is that essentially you can mute as you transform the this number yep. into something else. It's yes. almost like a scramble you you actually generate from the plain text uh, numbers are plain text bit string, you generate new uh, bit string, uh, new numbers. Yes. Um, but it's generated in a way that uh, also, encryption, there are many different forms of encryption. There's symmetric encryption, there's asymmetric encryption, and also there's encryption that with additional capabilities, like, for example, searching our encrypted data. So that's a new type of encryption algorithm that has this special capability built in to enable you to do search. Mm -hmm. There are other encryption schemes. This is where it can enable you to do compute over encrypted data as well. The encryption scheme itself has certain properties it's either called, like for example, homomorphic encryption and so on. So it has certain type of structure, or certain type of capabilities to enable you to do these other things, like computing uh, a sum of two separate texts to actually generate the separate text of uh, the addition of two numbers and so you, on. You totally lost me, but <laughs> I, I, I get but the... Anyway, anyway, so, <laughs> right. so, so, so the idea of encryption is that from the plain text, you can do some compute computation with the plain text yeah. using some secret material called yes. a key, yes. so that you can generate a separate text, yeah. so that only the person who has the decryption key yes. can then uh, use the decryption key to compute over the separate text to recover the original plain text. Right, makes sense. So um, encryption is one of the ways to achieve uh, privacy. Um, uh, so encryption, if you do computation over encrypted data. Yeah. This is one way how you can do what we call confidential computing. Mm -hmm. So you can protect the computation process from leaking sensitive information. Right. Only the person who has the key can access. Uh, In the, the end, only the person who has a key can decrypt the computation results right. and know the results. But this is one way to do uh, confidential computing. Another way um, that we actually also utilize uh, in the OSIS platform is using secure hardware. So this is a hardware-based mechanism um, that you can essentially using hardware, it provides a fully isolated execution environment so that uh, uh, you can run programs, run code inside this uh, fully isolated uh, execution environment such that anything outside, for example, the operating system or other applications they won't be able to see what's running inside, uh, hence protect the, uh, the confidentiality of the data and compute yeah, that's uh, from called, inside. Uh, so it's the technology uh, is called the uh, trusted execution environment, can also be called secure enclave. Yes. And there are different off-the-shelf off solutions. For, for example, Intel SGX uh, is one of the off-the-shelf solutions. But, but why, why, is, uh, why is that important? So assuming Assuming you don't have that, how can it be? How can the system be attacked? Oh, so for example, then uh, in this case, an attacker potentially can try to compromise either your operating system or you know the application that you are running on the system to try to steal sensitive information as you try to compute 
over the sensitive data. Okay. So essentially, this is one way to protect the the computation process from being attacked from leaking sensitive information. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> because it actually happens. You can view it as happens in this black box in this fully isolated execution environment. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. So we have um, uh, computing um over encrypted data, and then we so have one trusted uh, execution environment. Right, so these, uh, you can view them all as different technologies mm -hmm. for achieving the same goal of this confidential computing, mm -hmm. is to protect the, the computation process itself from leaking sensitive information. Mm -hmm. So this is one aspect of uh, privacy. Uh, the other aspect is um, essentially, so far I've only talked about the computation process. Uh, to protect the computation process mm -hmm. from leaking sensitive information. So the other aspect is as you compute, uh, the, the computation results itself could also leak sensitive information mm -hmm. because the computation results itself is computed from sensitive data in the first place. Yeah. So, so for example, if I try to uh, compute over your know, bank account information, to decide whether I should give you a loan or not. Yep. I may want to see whether you have enough savings in your bank accounts, yep. let's say, I don't know, over 50,000. Okay, $50,000. Then from the computation results, so in this case, if I give you a loan, uh -huh. meaning you have more than $50,000 in your bank account, uh -huh. then from this computation result itself, I already know one bit of information knowing that you have more than $50,000 yes. in your, your bank account. Yes. Uh, so in this case, essentially... And the, uh, that is the result of computation. Right, that's yeah. the result of the yeah. computation. And in this case, this result of computation leaks one bit yes. of information about your data. And, and we want to protect this one bit of information. Depending on the, on the policy and on the goal, right, you want to protect the computation results from leaking sensitive information. Mm -hmm. So this is one example. Let me give you another example of some of our recent work, also uh, in joint work with the researchers from Google. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we looked at... Uh, by, by the way, did you see all this uh, with the, the people at the White House? Like all these uh, technical details? Yeah, did we they, talked uh, about... How, how did they, how did, right. how did they react? 
Let us not. Maybe that's what we can save it for a different time. Okay. Uh, so, uh, right. So in this work, we looked at um, when people, you know, earlier you also talked about like deep learning and so on. Yeah. So one question is, as we train deep learning models, um, we also need to be careful with protecting users' data privacy. Uh, so one question is, as we train these deep learning models, how much information do they actually remember about the original training data? Mm -hmm. And if they do remember the original training data, can attackers actually exploit this vulnerability and try to extract sensitive information from the original training data um, by just querying these learned uh, models? So you're saying the, the person who trains uh, the model using some data, that data needs to be protected from uh, So let me give you one example. Right? So in our, uh, in our study, we did the following experiments. We trained a language model over an email dataset called the NRAN uh, email datasets. Mm -hmm. A language model is, uh, I, I don't know whether you notice like in, uh, in Google, like Gmail, for example, you have this smart Compose smart replies. So yeah, basically, yeah. as you type, that, it tries. That saves like five minutes of my life every every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great product. Minutes. Right. So, so as you type, it tries to predict what you are going to type next. Yes. Right. Yes. So, so this is essentially done through a language model. Yes. So, language model basically, what it does is, given a sequence of words, a sequence of characters, yep. it will try to predict what's the next word or the next character. Yeah. So, so in our study, we showed that if you, if we train a language model using this email, this Android email dataset, the Android email datasets naturally contains users' credit card numbers and social security numbers. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, our work showed that once we train a language model using this dataset, an attacker by devising new attacks, the attacker from just querying this trained language model without seeing the original training datasets, the attacker can actually recover, can actually extract uh, the original social security numbers and credit card numbers that were embedded in the original training datasets. I mean, if it's a, like some simple neural network model, if you know the end result, and if you know the, mod, the parameters that go into the model, then you can reverse engineer the, the input, right? So first of all, that actually is not easy. It's actually very challenging. Okay. And then secondly, in this study, actually the attacker, as I mentioned, the attacker can only query the model. The attacker actually does not see the details of the trained model. Okay. Meaning the attacker actually doesn't see the parameters of the model. Okay. All the attacker can do is uh, query the model in a sense that the attacker can give the model a sequence of words or characters and then see what the prediction the model gives. Okay. So, um, so how does uh, how does privacy technology get um, come into place? Right. So this is an example illustrating that that's why even as you train uh, deep learning models, you actually need to be very careful protecting users' privacy yeah. because in this case, an attacker can just learn your know, social security and credit card numbers, and um, and in our work, we also showed that actually we do have a a solution for this problem in this setting. So instead of training a vanilla language model, instead if you train differentially private 
language model. So essentially a language model with a particular privacy guarantees. Then in this case, we can actually significantly enhance the privacy protection. In, in this, this case, case the, the privacy guarantee is embedded in the model or, so or the, model the hardware? Is, or? No, the model is trained in a way that uh, essentially it ensures that the trained model in this case um, right, doesn't, does not leak yeah. sensitive information. Um, according to a certain definition, uh, this differential privacy definition. Mm -hmm. And hence, uh, actually, in this case, we also show that the original attacks do not work anymore. So, so, so this, so, I guess, goes back to your earlier question about privacy. Privacy is a multifaceted yes. uh, concept that has many different aspects. So essentially, in this case, we need to both protect the computation process uh, the security of the computation process from leaking sensitive information and also we need to ensure that the computation result itself does not leak sensitive information. Mm -hmm. So the, the key takeaway is, uh, you know, privacy is, has many different attack vectors and for each one of them, you probably need a each very specific solution for each one. It's like different uh, types of technologies and yeah. different types of solutions to address And the I problem. assume that uh, OSIS, uh, right, so at OSIS adopts a bunch of Right, so uh, that's why we are combining different uh, technologies to, right, to ensure this. So for example, we utilize secure computing techniques yeah. to protect the computation process from yeah. leaking sensitive information. And also we utilize other privacy technologies, for example, to train differentially private machine learning models mm -hmm. to protect the computation output from leaking sensitive information. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's, it's it's very intuitive to me and probably to uh, a lot of our audience that um, you know in applications like DeFi, decentralized applications, uh, decentralized fi financial applications, you want to be able to protect user data. It's it's very important. Uh, and uh, you, you want to be able to protect user data in all these different aspects. But there's a question that, that always bugged me for since the beginning of, of time is why do we need uh, a blockchain? Uh, why do we need decentralization uh, to protect it? Does decentralization actually help with privacy? Okay, so that's a very good question. So in our uh, so in our platform, as I mentioned, we actually combine blockchain uh, and distributed ledger uh, and privacy uh, technologies together. And mm -hmm. um, essentially, they serve different purposes. So, so for us, one of our goals is that we want to help users to maintain control of their data sure. and their rights to data. Yep. So essentially. Um, so, so similar in the past, um, you know, at the beginning of time, there's no notion of property rights, mm -hmm. sure. right? And it's only in the relatively recent Last past, four hundred years, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Then this notion of property rights actually started to be formulated, yep. and then people realize, oh, this piece of land is mine, and this piece of land is yours, yep. and this really then became a strong force to propel the economy. It's one of the cornerstones of modern capitalism. Exactly. Property, right? Exactly. And so property, so that's a physical you know, piece of land and so on. So it took us, you know, a long time to realize the rights to this piece of property is important, it's crucial. Yep. But so far in the in the digital world we haven't really reached 
there yet. Yeah. I think one thing as we talk about like data is a new oil. Yeah. Essentially, what propels uh, economy today is data. Yeah. Uh, data gives you really important information, helps you to make uh, you know critical decisions and so on. So also in the future, we, as we can imagine, what is um, particular about a person or what is valuable about a person, a lot of it is going to be digital, it's going to be the data related to the person. Yeah. And hence, going forward, I really do strongly believe that data, uh, you know, data rights is also a very important I mean, right. So for privacy is not just privacy. Privacy is strong property rights around exactly, your own data. Exactly, exactly. For me, right, so privacy has, again, has different aspects. Yeah. One part is how, right, to protect your private or sensitive information. But more importantly for me, I think it's really about this establishment and this recognition of data rights of, of individuals. Yeah. And, and also, you know, of uh, entities uh, in general. And hence, as we talk about these rights, it has just like people talk about distributed ledger, it's important for, you know, for title rights and, uh, and you know, as an immutable log for these important rights. And similarly, for data rights, you know, what's a better technology than distributed ledger to actually provide these immutable records and also in a decentralized fashion so that we can really establish uh, users' rights to data. So this is actually exactly some, you know, some of the really active domains that we are working in. We call it data sovereignty. is really to build out the platform, the technology, to help users to maintain their rights to data, and hence they can leverage these rights to data to then gain benefits. Um, and one domain that we're working in is in healthcare, where we are seeing a lot of traction as this way we help users to maintain uh, control to their uh, medical data. And also at the same so time... You're saying uh, Oasis as a protocol is being used in the healthcare uh, industry. Right, so the platform is enabling applications in the healthcare space mm -hmm. to help, uh, for example, patients to maintain control of their medical data. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, to enable their data to be utilized in a privacy-preserving way. Right. Uh, for example, to contribute to medical research and so right. on. So we have a... Yeah, one of the problems I, I, I realized recently as a you know, patient is that um, there, there's, there are so many different doctors and no one has all my records. But I do want, um, I do want to have a record that uh, I can give access rights to, to right. doctors in right. a way that they can easily access. Right, exactly, exactly. Right now what happens is like, I see this doctor, I have to send the information to some other doctor. It's, it's just a pain in the butt. Right, 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 it's a nightmare. It, it feels uh, like blockchain is, you know, a, a permissionless, permissionless database. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't say permissionless in this case, but a database that you can have, you can enable multiple actors. So in this case, multiple doctors to access your own uh, medical record. Um, and you, you, you can give the permission. Uh, so this is actually exactly one of the use cases that we are working with uh, and some of the largest uh, healthcare providers okay. uh, for this use case. Mm -hmm. And this is not the first time that I hear you know, people come uh, like, talk to me about the need for this. We routinely hear yeah. um, how difficult it is for patients when they visit multiple clinics and hospitals, how difficult it is to 
right? Even just to get their own doctors to see their medical information. For sure. And so on. For sure. Um, and and also, I mean, this is just one example. Uh, we're also working in the space of genomics and helping users to uh, maintain control of their genomic data and also in, then enable the data to be utilized in a privacy-preserving way to help contribute to medical research as well. Got it. Um, one last question. Uh, where is the industry going in 2020? What do you mean by the industry? You know, uh, on the adoption side, uh, use case, are we... I mean, personally, I think so far, uh, it's been 10 years since the birth of Bitcoin. And I've personally only have seen uh, two crypto networks that have got uh, product market fit. One is Bitcoin as a censorship resistant store of value. And uh, the other one is arguably a stable coin, uh, notably um, Tether, which is um, used a lot in, in Asia uh, to the surprise of most people in the West. Uh, but again, as a you know, sort of store of value, um, sometimes as a remittance, uh, as a medium of transfer of wealth. But outside of these two, frankly, I haven't seen much. I mean, so first of all, like product market fit is not binary, like it's a, it's a scale. But outside of Bitcoin and, and stablecoin, I haven't seen any other crypto network that really, you know, has, is really far along in the scale of product market fit. Um, and frankly, there isn't much outside of trading. Like the, the, the biggest use case right now is, is trading, is speculation. Um, so I guess my question boils down to uh, what use case, what, what is the next product market fit? Where, do we, are, where are we going to see product market fit in this space? <laughs> are we going to see it in 2020? Um, I mean, that's, uh, that's a very good question. That's a you know, billion dollar question. Um, so one, yeah, 2020 is just right around the corner. Yes. It's, re it's really soon. And I think on one hand, as we talk about the blockchain technology, it's still at its early stage. Yeah. Although on the other hand, we continue to see uh, the really fast, pa uh, fast pace moving forward. And we continue to see, you know, from all levels up, you know, from the governments, nation states, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, That's a whole other topic uh, right, that, that yeah, we right, can talk right, about. Yeah. Right. You know, um, and like both in terms of, you know, Libra and also the recent uh, announcement from the uh, Chinese government mm -hmm. and, and so on. So we are going to continue to see excitement in the space and uh, driving force, uh, strong driving force, I would say, in the space to push forward both the technologies and adoption. And so, the one thing I would say is, besides the use cases that you mentioned, um, the examples that I mentioned, for example, in data sovereignty and so on, I do think that uh, uh, one, data rights is fundamental, and I really do strongly believe that the establishment of data rights and the it's not, protection... It's not just a tech problem, it's, it's a the, regulatory problem. And enforcement, yeah, we continue to see the growth in the advancement of regulation in the space yeah. as well, right? GDPR, CCPA, and, and others. Um, I think this really is also creating, um, you know, the trend and also making the opportunity ripe uh, for, for greater adoption. Mm -hmm. uh, so for us, we are in partnership and uh, 
in the process of uh, we hope to actually announce some product launch yes. uh, in the near future and that actually also uh, serve as some you know, early example in the space to really illustrate you know, what this type of technology can really help us to accomplish. Cool. Awesome. Uh, that was a super fun uh, conversation. I'm, I'm really honored uh, to have uh, this opportunity. Again, this is uh, Tiao from uh, Masari, Unqualified Opinions. Thank you, Don. Great. Yeah, yeah. thanks a lot for having me. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.